Please uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts 16, if you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 925. We're in Acts 16, beginning in verse 16, and we will consider uh, through the end of the chapter together this morning. So Acts 16, 16 through 40. The title of our sermon is Songs in the Night. And the key words for our worshipers in training are arrest, rejoice, and magistrates. Last week, we witnessed Paul set off on his second missionary journey from his home church there in Syrian Antioch. And he began this journey by going back through the cities where he had uh, gone with Barnabas previously on their first trip. He wanted to strengthen the churches and to see how they were doing and to, uh, well, encourage them with the word from uh, the council at Jerusalem that we saw back in Acts 15. We also saw last week that rather than going with Barnabas this time, he took Silas with him and he picked up Timothy along the way. We saw them try to head into Asia and Bithynia, but they were denied entry into both places by the Holy Spirit. Paul then received a vision in the night and was beckoned by a man from Macedonia to come and to help them. And so they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to those in Macedonia. And so they immediately set sail from the city where they were in Troas. And they get to Philippi, a leading city, a Roman colony in the province of Macedonia. And Last week, that's where we left them. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and even our author Luke had joined them, it seems, in Troas and had sailed with them to Philippi. There, they had preached the gospel to a group of women at a prayer meeting, and a woman named Lydia believed. She was baptized and invited the missionaries to stay with her in her home. And this is where we find them today. Staying with Lydia, they're in Philippi, and they are on their way to one of those prayer meetings. But as we have so often seen in this book, the kingdom of man was not going to take this new offensive by the kingdom of God laying down. See, God's kingdom had continued to spread. It was spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now it's going out to the ends of the earth and now to this, this new city in Philippi, this was something that the forces of darkness wanted, needed to resist. And so we're going to see this resistance here, and yet we're also going to see the futility of this resistance. And so let me read these verses, beginning in verse 16. We will give an outline and then get to work. Acts 16 Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said, in, said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and, orders, uh, and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. There are three things I want you to see with me this morning. Three movements that this passage makes. First, in verses 16 through 24, we'll see the conflict between the two kingdoms again. We'll see this conflict between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God in the confrontation, the confrontation that Paul has with the slave girl demoniac second in verses 25 through 34 we see that despite the efforts of the kingdom of man to silence paul 
God's kingdom was going to prevail. There was no other way around it. And third, we see the, the surrender of the kingdom of man in verses 35 through 40. Of course, it's not an ultimate surrender, but in terms of battles, not necessarily the war, this is a telling surrender. So we see the conflict, we see the reality of the prevailing nature of God's kingdom, and we see the surrender of the kingdom of man and are under our three headings. Look with me in the first place then at verses 20, uh, 16 through 24, where we see the conflict arise. As I mentioned, Paul and company were heading one day to the place of prayer. And as they went, they were met by a slave girl who Luke tells us had a spirit of divination, which her owners exploited to their great gain. She started following the missionaries, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. Luke tells us this went on for many days. But finally, Paul had had enough. Greatly annoyed at this development, he rebukes the evil spirit and commands it to leave its host, which it does, we're told, that very hour. Well, of course, the slave owners do not take this well. They're none too pleased with this new development. And so they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged the two of them before the rulers of the city. They accused them, said they were Jews, disturbing the city, advocating customs that are not lawful for the Romans to either accept or practice. And the crowd, always eager, joins in, and so the magistrates strip Paul and Silas of their garments. They have them beaten and thrown into prison. So that's the first scene. What, would, what do we make of this scene? What do we think about these opening verses here of this text, this passage? Well, the first thing that we must remember, beloved, is that we are in a war. And it is a deeply spiritual one. Here we have this slave girl possessed by a spirit of divination who was made able to bring great gain to her owners through fortune telling. This isn't the first time that we've seen magic, magicians, and witchcraft, and sorcery, and those types of things in the book of Acts. Most prominently, you can think back to Acts chapter 8. Simon Magus, he was able to perform great wonders that amazed the people of Samaria. Luke does not in any way indicate that Simon in particular or this slave girl here, that they were shysters or tricksters. This isn't sleight of hand. What is, Paul, what is Luke saying here about the power of this little girl. Some way, somehow, by this spirit, she was able to tell the future. Luke wants us to see that we are in a spiritually embattled world. There are real powers out there that are opposed to Christ. Christ. 
and our enemy is a powerful one. But consider this also. Our enemy is not just powerful. It's not just wild that this spirit could somehow tell to some degree the future. The spirit is cunning. Because how does she go about attacking Paul and Silas and company? She doesn't jump out at them from behind the bush and tear them to pieces. She doesn't slander them, telling lies. She tells the truth about them. Verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God. Check. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. Check. I dare you, find the lie in that sentence. You can't. It's a perfectly true, completely true sentence that this devil uttered about Paul and Silas. What do we do with that? Well, it's a little hard to say, but we we know this. It greatly annoyed Paul, we're told, that she was saying these things. Why? Well, I think we have to do a little thinking here, a little creative work, but we can put ourselves in that situation and sort of have some very real possibilities as to why this would have been so distressing to Paul. Could it be that he didn't want to be associated with the likes of this probably very well-known demon-possessed woman and her slave owners? Yeah, sure. That's, that could be it. It could be that he didn't want unnecessary attention to be drawn to him through this woman crying out in the streets day after day who they are, what they're doing. I mean, think about it. How disturbing to your peace of mind, to your mission, whatever it is, how disturbing would it be to have someone following you around for days, making a commotion and shouting to anyone passing by about your identity and purpose, even if she were telling the truth. Whatever the precise reason that Paul was annoyed, and I think it's very likely one of those two or a combination of those two things, do you see how cunning the enemy is? How sly your adversary is? She didn't have to tear them to pieces to hinder their ministry, to bring about problems, to bring about perhaps unfruitfulness in the city. All she had to do was distract Paul, to be off-putting enough to the crowds that they would avoid them. And so, Paul was over it, and so he cast out a demon. But think about this. Think about the cunning nature of this enemy who apparently has some ability to at least read... Read the signs and seasons enough to tell the future. Maybe that was the goal. Cast me out, Paul. I dare you. If I can get Paul to cast me out here, it will create such a problem for the money-hungry slave owners that they surely won't stand for it. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Paul and Silas, right? They're seized, stripped, beaten, and thrown into jail. Brothers and sisters, we're in a war. We're in a war with a powerful and a cunning enemy. Now, we'll see the the limits of his power and his cunning in a moment, 
But I want to close this first portion of this sermon here with this exhortation. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Be aware and be warned. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. He also prowls around like an angel of light. He is sly, he is cunning, and he is stronger and smarter than you are. Let us not take him lightly. Let us not assume, therefore, that the witchcraft and magic and occult-like practices that we see here in Acts or that we see in our culture today growing in popularity, that they are mere tricks up the sleeve, sleights of hand, jokes to be laughed off. There are real powers out there, and they are really smart. But thanks be to God, their power and their cunning have limits. So let's look at this next point. To see those limits on full display. Look with me in the second point here in verses 25 through 34, where the kingdom of man utterly fails to silence Paul. The first thing we find here is that they are in prison, Doing something that would probably surprise you. Singing and praying at midnight. And they were still being heard. Prisoners there were listening. And then suddenly, amidst all the songs in the night, there is another sound. The sound of a great earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison And then the sound of every door opening. The sound of bonds falling off, being loosed from each prisoner. Such a sound, the jailer sleeping soundly wakes, realizes the predicament that he's in. They're all gone. I just know it. And in order to avoid the execution that would await him in the morning for having lost every single prisoner overnight, he goes to kill himself with his sword. And Paul stops him. And he lets him know, my friend, we're all still here. So he calls for the lights and he rushes into the cell and he he falls down before Paul and Silas, trembling. And he asks the ever-important question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him plainly, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Well, apparently, he then rushes them over to his house. They speak the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in his household. And there he takes them uh, somewhere, maybe the river, somewhere with water. And he, he washes their wounds. And then he himself is baptized, he and all his family. Chrysostom points out the reciprocal nature of these washings. It's a beautiful picture. The jailer washing the wounds and washing the stripes of these imprisoned missionaries. And then he himself is washed of his sins. I don't want to go on a long rant about credo-baptism here. But Luke mentions something about baptism and this like we saw with Lydia last week. He brings it up and so... I think we should as well. This, this text, I would argue, actually goes further than the Lydian account to show that throughout Acts, faith precedes baptism. Right? They tell him, believe and be saved, 
you and your household. They then share the word with him and all his household. All his family is baptized, and then they all rejoice together. In verse 34. Now, 34 says that you know, he brought them home, he gave them food, and rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. But that certainly doesn't mean that only he had believed in God, since Paul had said that all of the family should believe. And he shared the word with all the family, and all his family rejoiced. Again, you, you, don't, you can't build an entire argument for credo or pedo baptism from one passage alone, not even this one. But those are some observations as a Baptist to make. But the broader point of this passage is this, not even so much about baptism. It's this, the power of the evil one pales in comparison to the power of the Lord, to put it mildly. To whatever degree the evil spirit in the little girl could tell the future, to whatever degree it knew that annoying Paul would lead to him casting it out, which would lead to his arrest, surely it couldn't see much more beyond that. Because surely he would not have wanted yet another soldier called up into the ranks of the living God. Because now you have Lydia and her household. You have perhaps the slave girl. We're not told that she was converted, but that often is the case in the Bible that when a spirit is cast out of someone, that they come to follow Jesus. So possibly the slave girl. Now you have the jailer in his household. You've got an actual church forming here. And all this brings us back to to this embattled world that we're living in. This is now the third, I think, jailbreak that we've seen in Acts. The other two accounts in Acts 5, 19 and 20, and then 12, 7 through 11, they explicitly mention the work of an angel in such cases. The apostles are delivered by an angel in Acts 5. Peter is delivered by an angel in Acts 12. And so at this point... There's no reason to think that there isn't an angel involved here. Luke just doesn't specifically mention one. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we appreciate the fact that we are living in the midst of a war? The forces of good and evil, seen and unseen, are duking it out. And yet, one side infinitely outweighs the other. And so, take heart. Fear not. God is with us. There's one more lesson that I want to highlight from these verses before we look at our our final heading. When the jailer asks something, he asks them a question. What must I do to be saved? What does Paul say? He doesn't say, try really hard. He doesn't say, make sure that you are doing really well to read your Bible, to pray. He doesn't say, keep the law. He says, belief. Friend, have you believed in Jesus? Of course, I expect most of us in this room have, and I rejoice at that fact. But if you're here and you haven't, 
If you've not believed into the Lord Jesus, trusting Him, His life, His death, His resurrection to be sufficient to put you right with God forever, what holds you back? What insufficiency have you assigned to the Lord Jesus to justify unbelief? I pray that you would look at His power and His might outlined here in this passage. Paul was in prison, but the walls might not have, they didn't even need to exist as far as the Lord was concerned. There was no problem delivering Paul. Is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? There's nothing. And so I commend him to you now. And to bring it back to baptism one last time before we move on, like we said with Lydia last week, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus and so been united to him in his death and resurrection and haven't yet professed faith, professed that faith through baptism, then you should. Luke wants you to see that discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, means observing all that he taught his apostles. And that means to start getting baptized. So our third heading then, verses 35 through 40. After the, the long night of, of rejoicing and eating and washing was over, the magistrates sent word that Paul and Silas were to be released. Apparently, from the reading of the text, it seems as though they had afterward returned back to jail that night. And so... They send word to have them released. The jailer lets them know, hey, you guys have been freed. Um, And Paul says, not a chance. They beat us publicly. We're uncondemned men. We're Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison, and now they want to let us go secretly? No, they can come down here themselves and do it. So Paul's message is a bold one. And it is relayed to the magistrates, and their spirits surely fell immediately upon realizing that they had treated Roman citizens in such a way. Roman citizens were not, by law, they were not subject to many of the types of ill treatment that other criminals would have endured. Certainly not the beatings and the, the, uh, just the tossing them in, into prison the way that they had. And so they, they sort of crawl back to them. They apologized and they, they asked, kind of begged them to leave. And so the missionaries visit Lydia and the brothers. They bring encouragement and they leave town. And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, they head for Thessalonica. But I just love, I love this scene in these verses here in 35 through 40. The governing authorities of Philippi are absolutely humiliated here. They had rashly, foolishly, and sinfully arrested these men on trumped-up charges, lies, and deceit. They had acted in the height of injustice, except for perhaps they hadn't murdered them, so I suppose they have that to their credit. And perhaps that morning they had realized they had overreacted, that they didn't have anything to hold these men on, to do anything with them, and so they attempt to let them go the next morning. Or perhaps not. Perhaps they, they thought surely a night in jail after a night of beating would do
do them so good. Maybe they'll leave this way. Whatever the case, things are worse than they realize because they're not just two guys. They're Roman citizens, and they had really stepped in it. But Luke doesn't go into detail, but it's kind of fun to imagine just how much groveling these tyrants might have had to do or had started to do before Paul and Silas. Please, sirs, could you leave? Which, of course, they graciously do. But I love Paul's boldness here. As I said, it's a bold message he gives to them. Right? Likely heartened by the miraculous, uh, um, not discovery, miraculous delivery from the night before, He calls them on the carpet. He says, no, you can't just do this and get away with it. Because he's assured, right? How does he have such boldness? He's assured that no matter how they respond, God is going to keep working. God is going to, to stay with him. There's nothing to fear. But he's not audacious or arrogant. But he's bold and he presses his rights as a Roman citizen to full effect. Perhaps this is an an act of kindness to Lydia, to the slave girl, and to the jailer. Paul leaves Philippi essentially with a stern warning to the magistrates. Be careful how you treat us. Speculating a bit there, but he wants them to know that what they had done is wrong. And the point of this, these verses is pretty much the same as the others. The kingdom of God triumphs to the shame of the kingdom of man. The, the magistrates working basically in tandem with the kingdom of man, working with the kingdom of darkness, they have surrendered in this case. And asked for mercy, which Paul grants. So what can we take from this passage as a whole? How do we land this plane, bring this thing to a close? There are two points that I think need to be reiterated and driven home for us as as we go from here. The first regards the limited yet real craftiness of our enemy. And I want you to think about the temptation of Jesus with me for a moment. Think about that, Uh, Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And in the second temptation, what does he begin to do? He begins to quote scripture to Jesus. He takes them into Jerusalem. He sets them on the pinnacle, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he tells Jesus, hey, throw yourself off the roof because of what Psalm 91, 11 and 12 says about the one who takes shelter in the Almighty. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus, in reply, quotes Deuteronomy six thirteen which says that we should not put the Lord our God to the test. Which is kind of amazing 
to respond that way. But what's even more amazing is the humility and the restraint in the Lord Jesus not to quote Psalm 91.13. The devil quotes Psalm 91.11 and 12. Psalm 91.13 says this, To the one who takes shelter in the, the Most High, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now what comes to mind? Genesis 3.15. God declares war against the devil. Your seed and her seed will go to war. You will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. The audacity of the devil to quote Psalm 91, 11 and 12 to the Lord Jesus when Psalm 91, 13 is an explicit promise of God to his Messiah that his feet would trample on the great dragon and on the prowling lion. This is the same point that we saw earlier. Just how close will your enemy come to the truth In his war against you, dear saints, much closer than you would ever expect. He quotes to Jesus two verses that immediately precede a prophetic judgment against him. The devil has no shame, his brazenness knows no end. And yet we also see here a great deal of folly. His knowledge, his craft, his cunning will only bring about his ultimate demise and the victory of God's kingdom. He was the one, after all, who used Judas to take Jesus to the cross, whereby this victory was won. And so this brings about a final observation and reminder. I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, and I'll say it a hundred more. God's kingdom marches on. Ever outward in the book of Acts, never to be stopped. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Cyrene, Syrian Antioch, Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, and now Philippi in Macedonia. Thessalonica and Berea are next. After that is Athens and Corinth and Ephesus, and eventually the gospel gets to Rome itself. And then eventually it gets here to Rincon, Georgia. There are ebbs and flows of faithful Christian witness in this place and in that place. But God's kingdom continues, stable and steadfast. A kingdom that cannot be shaken, always, ever drawing sinners in. And so, with that, we now get to come 